I'm glad to see everybody. I know some of you had a great weekend, Thanksgiving. Some of you are here to escape. Yep, there we go again. Wrong one. I'm so sorry. Well, we'll just do it this way. This will be good. I kind of like this. This will be fun. Those of you watching internationally, this is what we do here. All right, I'll fix this. I'm so sorry. I, you know, I was thinking, you know, a lot of us, anytime you're with family, I don't know, very, very few of us don't have this experience at some level where we go, wow, this is dysfunctional. And, um, and I started thinking, you know, so we come, we get together, and this is family. And it is no less dysfunctional, Right? But that's just who we, that's what it means to be people together. That's just the reality. If you get a bunch of people together, we are going to be dysfunctional. But that doesn't mean we can't love. I, um, I want to preface a little bit this morning before I um, start our conversation. I just had this thought driving over that for sure I feel a responsibility in terms of what we will experience together. I, I do feel that. But I had a question. Do you feel any responsibility as we get together today? Like, if I didn't show up, it would be a long, awkward half hour. <laughs> right? Just sitting here, I don't know what we'd do. Um, but if you didn't show up, how would this experience be different? And I say that not in any way, in any sense, to shame what you might need this morning. So for sure, there are people who, who just crawled here and need a moment of sort of a quiet tranquility. I totally honor that. But that's not everybody here. And so today, I'm not going to ask any rhetorical questions. All my questions that I might ask, you should feel free to respond to. You should feel free to expand beyond the question even. You might have a question yourself. So I say that because here's what I know will happen. I'll ask a question, and you might have a a sense that you could respond or you have a question yourself, whatever it may be. And I, I have a hunch that you might feel afraid. And I'm just going to gently encourage you, would you be willing, if that is true of you, to maybe push through that just a little bit? And the reason I say that is you may devalue your own question or whatever it may be, but my experience has been that your question will also be the question in so many people's minds and hearts who could not ask that question or who could not give that response. And one of the ways I've seen community, especially with people who primarily gather once a week, how they begin to connect with each other is, is I've seen after these experiences somebody come and say to somebody, when you said that, that felt like what I was feeling. So, all of that as preface. One more thing, I'm going to be talking about hope today. Today, 
is also the hope candle in Advent. And I confess, I had no idea about that. So you do with that what you want. It makes me feel very spiritual like I heard from God. <laughs> but I'm going to read for you our passage of hope today, beginning in Luke 2, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means he was waiting for the the comforting experience, the comforting one, the peacemaking one of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. This week, this Thursday, I suppose, how many of you shared, you just say, sat around the table or the living room and shared what you were thankful for? Does anybody have that experience? Yeah, that's a, that is a really nice tradition. We forgot to do that in our family. I was thinking it as I drove over. Like, that's the, the one thing you're supposed to, we were thankful and, you know, we were grateful for lots of stuff, but we forgot to do that. And I, I thought, oh man, we missed that. But uh, how many of you, again, you can just kind of raise your hand if you want. Uh, your thankfulness had to do with a relationship, something relational, marriage, family, you know, kids, something like that. Yeah, right? Anybody have something that was health-related? I'm just wondering. Health-related. That sometimes comes up. Provision, something in the last year that God had provided for you that you were grateful for and thankful for. Or something that was more spiritual or emotional. The kinds of things that we look back on and we are grateful for. We see that God did something 
He did something for us or for our family or for our community. But what about something that hasn't yet fully occurred? What's it like to be thankful in anticipation? I think gratitude is one of the foundational skills of being a follower of Jesus and it's not an easy skill to develop. I struggle with it. But to, but to grow to the place where I begin to be grateful for something that hasn't even happened yet, well, I think that is maybe what we call hope. What we anticipate God will do for us in the future but hasn't yet quite fully happened is what we call hope. Hope has been on a rapid decline in our culture. Um, since 1999, the suicide rate has increased 24%. That's astronomical to me that in this time period, we would see that kind of a spike in suicides. And I, I was thinking, I mean, I mean, people survived World War I and World War II. There was the Great Depression. There was the Cold War where folks, especially in the Southeast, were convinced that Russia was going to launch a nuclear warhead from Cuba. There was no doubt that was going to happen. And if you go farther back in history, it seems to me there have been times when, from a, an observer, it would have made much more sense to be in despair. In all of history, they say that we have in the United States the greatest standard of living, the greatest accumulation of wealth ever known. So I was having a conversation before the service. Perhaps that isn't just coincidence. Maybe that is causation. Maybe one has led to the other. I, I want to um, separate for a moment this idea of hope and desire because we're um, going to have a little bit of a language conflict with that. We use the word hope a lot. I'm in no way disparaging Desire. Desire is great, it's, it's human, and it's a gift from God. I, I, I might say I hope to go on vacation this year to a beach. Or I, I'm hoping to get a new car. More likely what I'm actually communicating is what I desire. It's what I would like to have happen. Hope, I think, is especially as we're going to have it in our conversation today, I believe hope is rooted in some kind of a revelation. It's rooted in some kind of a prompting that is deeper than just something that I might want. And again, not that that's bad. It's just different than the way we're going to talk about hope. And that's, that's why I read uh, this passage. This passage, while it has lots of, of nuance, 
lots of, lots of things happening, lots of important things. But as an observer, as one feeling emotionally what is happening, it, it feels to me like this fulfillment of hope. And I wonder, in a time when hope is hard to hang on to, maybe we can pick some things up from this story. I'll say this as we begin this observation in the story of Simeon and Anna. I think hope is maybe best taught by old people. You know, I've I've been around church kinds of stuff for a long time. There was a a season, it, it doesn't seem to be quite as popular, maybe I'm just in different circles, when this idea, they called it the church growth movement. I'm sure there was a lot of good things that came out of the church growth movement, but what it was was consultants would, could come together and give you sort of um, best practices and research-driven data on what you could do to grow your church. And one of the ways in which they um, concluded was perhaps one of the better ways, if you wanted a larger church was to target a particular population. That population had a median age probably of 35 and was probably married and probably had young children. That if you catered your experience to a 35-year-old who was married with a couple of kids would be the most rapid way you could grow because you could catch grandparents who wanted to be with those kids and some people have teenagers. You get the idea. That that would be the way you culturally caught a community. I started thinking, I was in a lot of those kinds of conferences, meetings, reading, all that kind of stuff, and I don't ever remember anybody saying, here's a really good idea. Really focus on the old people. Because older people can tell a story that a 35-year-old cannot tell yet. (laughs) As you know, I'm not saying anything bad about 35-year-olds. And it may seem that at 58, I am just trying to feather my nest, but that's not true. I'm really trying to be observant. And in fact, most of my Christian experience There is an age at which a person is no longer asked to contribute their wisdom. I'm not saying they're not respected. I'm not saying they're not appreciated. But it seems like there's an age at which a person is no longer invited into the vitality of what makes church, church. And in fact, if they are, sometimes that 35-year-old is a little put out. Because culturally... They want different things. I don't have a full answer to that. I just see that even in this space and time, we we have sort of forgotten a little bit. I can speak from experience, and again, this sounds self-serving. I don't mean it that way, but when you become an unemployed pastor at 56, it's a very different experience than when you're an unemployed pastor at 35. 
there are just very few search committees sitting around going, let's find a 58-year-old dude. What does that have to do with hope? You see, we have the story of Anna and Simeon. We don't know exactly, to be honest, we don't know exactly Simeon's age. History, inference makes us believe he was old. Doesn't say that specifically. But we, you get that idea. I mean, when it's not many, you know, 20-year-olds who are going, Lord, I have, I have finally seen what you promised. Just take me home now. I'm done. This is good. I've had enough. I am happy. I checked the boxes. Let's just, let's just get to heaven. And that's kind of what, that's what Simeon is saying. What I observe in them is this story that for a long, long, long long time they had a hope that was rooted in some kind of a revelation. It was rooted in something that we hear specifically in Simeon through the Spirit I sense that you told me I was going to see this Messiah. And again we fill in some of the gas but you get the idea that he keeps coming to the temple and as he does, he, I'm, cer- I'm certain, worships, enjoys God, but he has an eye out for what's this Messiah going to look like. I love that the story, his old people, his heroes. I like that the story is rooted in a long story of calling and revelation and hearing from God. Here's here's a question. I'll give a second, I'll let you think about it, and then if you wanted to answer, that would be great. Have you had a sense of calling in your life at some time? And you can be a young person, it can be a new calling. But have you had a sense of calling in your life, a, a sense of a sort of a a purpose or a vision that you're still waiting for. In other words, are, are you hoping for something in the way we're talking about hope? You'd have to speak loudly because we'd all like to hear. But I'll wait a few moments. If you throw up your hand, then I, we won't speak over each other. I'll kind of point at you, and then we would love to hear what you brought to the table today. <clears throat> I've felt so much like a calling that hasn't happened. Yet. There have been at least four or five times that God has put something on my heart to go and do. Mm. You know, I have one specific thing. When I did it, I saw his hand move and amplify it. That's awesome. Okay, I'll just go to the part B of the question. Do you have that same thing? And it has happened. That was part B, but we'll just go and throw that in now. So for your case, you had a sense that God had asked you to do something. You 
you knew he asked you to do it, but you probably didn't know exactly what it was going to look like when you did it. Is that accurate? And then you did it. Yeah. I think that's a sense of the gap is called hope. But somebody else. To construct something. Yeah. Wow, so God has in you this, and that's a pretty uh, nonspecific in one sense, because you don't know what, is that what you said? You don't know what, but you know that you, you're, you're going to build something in your future. Love it. I love that. I left my former church 16 years ago. I mean, I really deeply hoped that theologically, I mean, the main reason I left was over theology. And um, I hoped that, you know, you, you hope to kind of strike gold, I guess. That you could find some things out theologically that were better than you, you might have hoped for. And that, in fact, happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, recently completed a study of church history that just kind of completed elements of everything we talk about here and everything that's been going on in the last 16 years with Peter and everything we're doing. And I mean, that hope came about in a way that was astoundingly more than I would have hoped for. Yeah. And, and it's only getting deeper and better as we go. So it's a great hope and it's something God's given me. I love that. And we're giving it to other people too. It's, Astounding, really. Just the whole idea of going back to the church talk for five years. The privilege of being called to do that again. Scary, but very, very Very. Yeah. So you, it sounds to, when you were saying that, I was thinking about Abraham, because it sounds like you left the church, not like Abraham, it says that he left not knowing where he was going to go. But you knew you needed to go, but not exactly where you were going to land. But you landed in a place that you found home and resonance. And thank you. Thank you. Some of the ones that are difficult to say out loud and certainly don't feel like you would have to, a lot of them have to do relationally where you have a sense that you know God told you that you would have a connection or an influence or a way of being that you still long for that hasn't happened in the way that you believe he told you it would. Oh, those are so hard. Those are so hard to hang on to. Thanks for your bravery. I, uh, I love that this story of hope in Simeon and Anna is rooted in a, what I believe is uniquely Christian. Now, I'm not in any way an expert on world religions. Um, I don't, you know, there, there's so much I don't know. 
And I admit, I'm, I'm kind of mostly just a fan of the home team. But I think, while there's a few things that really distinguish the story of Jesus from any other story, in, in, in ways I see every other story so similar and Jesus seems in such contrast to all those stories in terms of what grace looks like. And this is um, a little bit of a long quote. It's from a pastor named Tim Keller. Tim and I don't agree on lots of stuff, but there's so many times I really like what he says. He, that's probably just how the body of Christ works, right? Look again at the uniqueness of Christianity. Only the Christian worldview locates the problem with the world not in any part of the world or in any particular group of people, but in sin itself. Our loss of relationship with God. In other words, Christianity doesn't blame one group of people. It's not those folks' fault. If we could fix those kinds of people, then we could be happy or connected. It is, it is not rooted in that. And it locates the solution in God's grace, our restoration of a relationship with God through the work of Christ. Sin infects us all. And so we cannot simply divide the world into the heroes and the villains. And if we did, we would certainly have to count ourselves among the latter as well as the former. Without an understanding of the gospel, we will be either naively utopian or cynically disillusioned. We will be demonizing something that isn't bad enough to explain the mess we're in, and we will be idolizing something that isn't powerful enough to get us out of it. This is, in the end, what all other worldviews seem to do. The Christian story line works beautifully to make sense of things and even to help us appreciate the truth embedded in stories that clearly come from another worldview. The Christian storyline or worldview is creation and fall, followed by redemption and restoration. The whole world is good. God made the world and everything in it was good. There are no intrinsically evil parts of the world. Nothing is evil in its origin. As Tolkien explained about his arch-villain in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, in the beginning even Sauron was not so. You can find this creational good in anything. The whole world has fallen. There's no aspect of the world affected by sin more or less than any other. For example, are emotion and passions untrustworthy and reason infallible? Is the physical bad, but the spiritual good? Is the day-to-day -day world profane, but religious observance is good? None of these are true. But non-Christian storylines must adopt some variation of these in order to villainize and demonize some created thing instead of sin. The whole world is going to be redeemed. Jesus is going to redeem spirit and body, reason and emotion, people and nature. Here's the line. There is no part of reality for which there is no hope. And I would add, that is one of the things we have a long hoping for.
a long anticipation of. I love that the story is set in a motif of the kingdom. The scenery, the set, is a kingdom. And a good king has come. Anybody here watching The Crown? The um, uh, Netflix story about, it's, it's, I think we're in the third season now. Uh, it's the story of Queen Elizabeth from the very beginning. And it, it, one of the very clear story lines is the separation of the royal family from everybody else. They are set apart. They are other. There are some very specific rules that you follow when, a, you know, when addressing them. And it, it is, you know, I'm not in any way making judgment on how they run that. It seems to me that she represents, in a way, how all kingdoms work, how all kings or queens operate. They operate above and other than. I was, I was listening to a, a, a preacher, he, preacher, and he was saying that it's difficult for us as Americans, as I have experienced watching the show, it's really experienced for me, difficult for me to experience exactly what's happening. We don't really have that in the same way. You know, where for a thousand years we've had this instilled culture of royalty. But he said we, we do have in our culture access to the idea of a coach. And there's some similarities. So a coach comes and trains, inspires, leads, does set the rules, does have expectations. That's what a coach does. There is very little difference in the job description of a good coach and a bad coach. They look almost identical. But here's the difference. A bad coach will use his subjects for his own benefit and reputation. A bad coach will sacrifice his subjects, his, his kids, his athletes, for his own benefit and glory. I bet you know where this is going. But a good coach will sacrifice his own benefit and glory for the benefit of his team, his athletes, his students. We are told in the scriptures that we have a setting of a kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. There are some parts of this kingdom of God which are analogous to the royal family of England. The king does set the agenda. The, the king does have the, the role of inspiration and power. The king leads. But there's a difference between a good king and a bad king. The good king will sacrifice his own reputation and benefit for his subjects.
as Simeon blessed his two new friends, Joseph and Mary. He looked at Mary and said, a sword will pierce your soul. Your king is going to sacrifice everything for the benefit of everyone. And I love that the story of hope is rooted in the eternal. You see, when we desire something, that something will one day go away. A new car, the memory of a vacation, and even a relationship. I don't know if you've had the privilege in your life to be close to a person who is over 90. I have. And at the end, there's nothing, there's nothing my father-in-law really wants. If he had all the money in the world, I don't think he could think of something he would buy. Warm slippers, maybe. He, he, he's just not going to have the health he one day once had. Almost every one of his friends is gone. He was quite well known in his town for being very clever, smart, godly, honest, good. Nobody knows who he is today. Again, there's nothing wrong with desire for wanting those things, but those things won't last. What we hope for, what we deeply hope for, a connection, an influence, that will last for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we didn't come together today to watch something or to see something but we came to be together. And we, we came, even if we didn't know it, we, we came to hear from you. Father, hope for a long time is hard. It's hard to wait. And so we pray that we could encourage each other, that our stories would give a little support to the person who is losing hope. And Father, I especially pray for our folks that feel old, 
feel like um, their time of being useful has passed, oh Lord, help us ask them. Remind us to ask them of their stories. And Lord, I pray for the young people that they would hear from you a calling that will last them a long, long time. In Jesus' name, amen. We, um, as most of you know, but you might be a guest, we always invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is um, a, uh, what would you call it, a, a meal, a recreation of the last night that Jesus was here. Uh, when he, he summed up what our hope is, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. So take and eat of it. And after that, it says he took the cup, and after he'd given thanks, he told them that this is the blood of the new covenant. In other words, this is the um, this is a new story. This is a story rooted in eternity. You see, a story that's rooted in your effort, that's going to end at your death. But a story rooted in the new covenant that's rooted in him will never end. The, um, the white cup is juice, and the brown cup will be wine, and everybody is welcome to come. Before I read our benediction, just a reminder, there'll be um, folks who'd be willing to minister to you and with you, and there'll be a, there's a couple of folks who would love to pray with you if you wanted to take advantage of that. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Amen.